I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner, the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Slavery is not a subject that is so popular today, especially when we think about um, African slavery in America in the 1800s. And there's a lot of different debates about reparations and the news of slavery. I think for many of us, we just do not have an idea of what it means to be enslaved by somebody. And if you know, and if you've uh, taken American history, you know the Middle Passage during that 1800s transfer uh, against the will of men, women, and children from a lot of times the, the western coast of Africa all the way to the United States and the south and as well as to the Caribbean islands. It was a really horrific time period with incredible barbarism and a real tragedy and travesty of understanding of the dignity of life that God has created every man, woman, child to be as image bearers of God. So I think to understand slavery and to think about that picture in many ways is a good comparable to understanding our enslavement to sin. You might not think of slavery as in the enslavement of sin like that, but for Paul, as well as for Scripture, that's exactly how the slavery of sin, the enslavement of sin, is meant to be understood by us. We're supposed to see sin so deeply embedded into our hearts that it truly owns us. It captivates us. It captures us. It's meant to be something that is undignified, horrific before a holy God. And I would say that for most of us, we probably don't see our sin that way, which is why, again, we spoke last week and the week before much about the purpose of the law. The law is meant to show us how enslaved we are to sin. And until we grasp that, we won't really find the gospel precious. We won't find what Jesus did in our behalf as a substitute, as something that we cherish, delight in. This is why if we focus only on Galatians chapter 1 through 3, there's been this sort of downward slide. I mean, it's really been downwards from the very outset when you consider the fact that Paul's beginning by saying, we who preach or understand a different gospel are accursed. Well, now we move on towards the idea throughout chapter 3 that 
the law, while it's good, it shows our enslavement. It points that out to us. And that's why chapter 4 marks a turning point in Galatians. We begin to see this in that no longer is it we're going to be simply slaves, but we are sons, we are daughters. And the more we understand the enslavement of our sin, the fact that the law points that out to us, and then our freedom that comes in Christ, only then can we truly know what it means to be a son or daughter. So with this, I'd like to look at two points of this move from sonship to slavery. First is the marks of a slave in verses 1 through 3. And then secondly is the marks of a son in verses 4 through 7. To point out a few marks of the slave, the first is a slave is bound. They're imprisoned. We see this in verses 1 through 2. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So Paul's point is to say, a slave is bound. A slave is imprisoned. Now, you can even be a child, an heir, but until the the parent comes, they're still bound. They're still bound to the, the wills of, as we learned last week, the pedagogue. Let me give you an example. I know some of you have uh, set up trusts and wills for, to protect and to also provide for your family should something happen to you one day. And if you set up a trust, you know that you probably have given some sort of condition to that trust to be enacted. Perhaps it's after my child turns probably not 18, It's maybe 26, you know, it's not 21, it's not 25, it's 26, 30, maybe 50. (laughs) Now, why is that? Why do we do that? Because let's say you have a million dollars to give away as an inheritance for your children. And if you were to not put in that stipulation, then by law, if that, uh, if you were to die, then your heirs, your children, would get that money almost immediately, a million dollars. Now imagine your 14-year-old son or daughter getting a million dollars. What would they do with that million dollars? Would they take that money and invest it wisely? Or would they go out and say, I have a million dollars, I'm going to buy, I'm going to go to Forever 21, <laughs> or I'm going to go to the Gap. Uh, they won't do that anymore. It's the the standard has gotten much higher. But maybe I'm going to buy 50 pairs of sneakers, right? And 30 pairs of jeans or whatever. Or I'm going to go buy a Maserati. You know, that's what they're going to do. I'm going to go buy a Maserati. I'm going to buy a Maserati and a Lamborghini. And I'm going to just ride each one. So by the time, if they get there 14, by the time they're 21, they have nothing. They're, they're penniless. Or maybe they're like the prodigal son. Do you remember what the prodigal son did when he got half his inheritance? He actually spent it on his friends. Why do you think he did that? Because he wanted to gain their favor. He wanted to be liked. And so if you have a lot of money and you go walking around and you have a lot of friends, you you try to buy them. You try to buy your happiness, your popularity, your sense of worth. That's why the trust has a stipulation. Do not give this money until they're 26-year-old or whatever it might be. 
Keep that in mind because that's sort of the idea of what Paul is saying here in verses 1 through 2. A son, an heir, had no legal rights until they came of age, which is usually around 21 years old. Until that point, they were treated like a slave. And so the pedagogue who actually was a slave was brought into the household to train that heir, that son. He actually had more rights than the son did. So we have to keep that in mind because this enslavement period is the reality of what Paul is speaking about. And only when we turn a certain age do we get that freedom. The law reminds us of this. The law's point is to show you that you are bound. You are enslaved to sin. You are not free. And the law shows you your sin, but it doesn't free you from sin. It shows you that you have a need, but it doesn't free you from that need. And we all know, as we've experienced during this past two years, that even under the, the enslavement of COVID, you know, the fact that you have to wear a mask, that's an enslaving. The fact that you have to be in your house and we're under certain stipulations by law, by the government, all these things remind us. And th those are small barriers because we're not literally sitting in a prison in a four-by-four four cell somewhere in solitary confinement alone. We can actually move around and go about. But even in a big house, over a year, the walls start closing in, and suddenly even that mansion doesn't seem so big. Freedom is not free when no matter how big the confined space is, if you're not able to go and move at your leisure, you're not free. And that lack of freedom ultimately will eventually lead to misery. So being bound is miserable. It leads to it. Maybe not in the moment, but eventually it will. Secondly, is that we're owned. We're not just bound, we're owned. Look at verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This is a, a phrase, that second part of that verse, that phrase, elementary principles of the world, it's a conundrum. Because the question is, what is that referring to? You know, why did that come into play? This phrase is repeated in chapter 4, verse 9, which we'll speak about next week. And then it's also mentioned in Colossians 2.8 and Colossians 2.20, as well as, if you can recall, it, there's a very similar phrase in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Remember when Paul said, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So that elementary principles of the air is this idea of some sort of spiritual stronghold. And specifically in the Galatian context, it's thought that the Galatians, that province, was a place where people worshipped all sorts of gods, pagan gods. And so these Christians who are coming into the church and are turning to Christ, but they have a background, a traditional, maybe even a personal tie and even a, an imprisonment and enslavement to worship of other gods and idolatry. And they essentially were owned by these false gods, and there was no escape from them. I'm sure there were many Christians, some of them who were in the church, 
who are really struggling with their past, who have experienced from their past different strongholds of idolatry that now they're in a Christian context, they're still battling that. Perhaps sometimes even feeling as though I miss the worship of these idols because they gave me security. Or maybe it was a tradition of their family. And I know some of you who have come from perhaps certain traditions um, by being a Christian, and this happens especially in the Muslim world or someone who's leaving a cult like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, they come and turn to Christ, but their whole family are Jehovah's Witnesses and they've been essentially exiled from that family or Muslims who've been exiled and disowned. And so while they're worshiping the Lord, there's also this pull because they hear the, the voices of their family members saying, what are you doing? You've abandoned us, come back. And so there's this real push-pull of what it means to follow Christ and how do you separate yourself from family traditions, from a strong sense of parental, um, perhaps just a, a sense of honoring the family. And maybe we've let, had to leave that behind. Their sins felt like a trap. They literally felt like chains, spiritual oppression. And sometimes when you feel that way, it just seems so impossible to break. It's what the law shows us. Because the law always points out what is right, and our hearts are inclined to turn away from what is right before God's eyes, we always see how we fall short. I don't know if you've ever tried reading a book that's already been highlighted. Maybe if you've ever bought a used book, and I know when you go into college, a lot of times you buy used books. I don't know, these days, maybe you don't, and maybe it's now PDFs, but when I, was, when I was in school, you actually went to a bookstore and bought used books. And when you buy these used books, so often, because they're cheaper, they were used, and sometimes they have highlighting in it. Did you ever notice that? And as much as you think, okay, I'm not going to go by what's highlighted, you can't help it. Whatever's highlighted in that book, automatically your eyes are drawn to it, and you think that's the most important thing that needs to be said, even though if someone could have just been randomly highlighting. The highlighting just highlights what is deemed to be most important, and that highlighting, you cannot avoid it. That's the law. The law highlights sin. It's the law shows that it's like the ambulance and police cars that are on the side of the road with their, in the dark of the night where the, the sirens are spinning and there's been an accident and you're driving on the other side of the freeway and the accident's on the other side and you're driving through. And when you see those spinning lights, you can't help but just stare. It points out how dark our sin is. We actually need that. We need that to happen. We spoke about this much last week. Again, for the Galatians, the law didn't give them hope. Not without Christ. You see why Paul is saying, you're going to be accursed if you try to preach a different gospel, a gospel that says the law is what saves you. The law plus Jesus is what gives you hope because the law only points out how miserable you can be. I mean, try to do anything to follow God by your efforts. Our instinct is always to respond to problems of our sin with the law. In other words, if you struggle with anger, here's the answer. Read these books, memorize these verses, and pray 30 minutes a day. Attend this anger management class, go to counseling. 
Do you notice anything about those things? They all have commands. It's all do these things, do this, 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 and then if you do them, you won't have anger anymore. Is that how it works? Anyone ever try? If you ever think for someone who struggles with lust, and there, sometimes there is no sin that feels more enslaving than the sin of lust. And I know in counseling different people on this topic, when you say, read this book, pray this many times, uh, memorize these Bible verses, go to counseling, get accountability, put the software on your, inter- uh, on your computer, uh, have accountability partners, every one of them fall again and again and again. Why is that? Because the law cannot solve a heart problem. But it's our instinct to think, let's put all these laws, if you just do it, everything will be okay. And what Paul is saying is that's an accursed gospel. That's actually a gospel that is not the gospel. It's not good news because, again, the law points out your sin. It highlights it. It reveals it. It shows you you have to run to Christ. You have to remember what he's done for you. You have to really, really come to the end of yourself. And the law spotlights a spiritual demonic power. It spotlights two things. One is your own depravity, and it spotlights Satan is at work. Both of those things are doing everything it can to enslave you to sin. And I tell you that if it was anything that we did that actually freed us from that, then here's the biggest question of all. Why would we need Jesus to die for us ever? If it really was read the Bible, get accountability groups, read this good book, attend this class, do this seminar. If it was all of those things, would you ever need Jesus, actually? Would he ever have needed to die on a cross? He could have just given us a bunch of rules and regulations and then everything would have been okay. But we know that's not the case. So without the gospel, the law leads to despair. And without the law, there is no need for a gospel. We need the law to rightly drive us to Christ, and we need the law to show us that we can't do it on our own to defeat Satan's powers over our hearts. I love the way John Stott puts it. He says, God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and to drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as the final step to his condemnation. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac. I love that last part because it's exactly what he does. How does Satan use the law as a cul-de-sac? You know what a cul-de-sac is, right? It's that where there's uh, homes around and the drive, you, your street, it ends in that area. And so some of you lo- live on a cul-de-sac. You love living on cul-de-sac because you can just play around here and it's all safe. But if Sa- how does Satan use that law as a cul-de-sac is that he takes the law and if we actually think the law is what cures our hearts, keeps us from sin, he actually takes that and actually creates more sin, more self-righteousness more self-justification, more self-effort. And then I think I need more laws and you start creating more laws. 
And it's a miserable home. If the church, and there are churches, I, I pray that we would not be this church, but if the church is all about creating a bunch of laws and rules and regulations for why we do what we do, then eventually it grows wearisome. It can lead to behavioral change, but not heart change. So let me give you an example. You know, I've, I'm asking you to come and pray. We really need it. What if I demanded and said, in order to be a leader in the church, if you're an elder, you definitely, you have to come. You have to. And if, if you're a, a pastor, you have to come and pray. And some of you are thinking, what's wrong with that? Yeah, you should. You have to. Why wouldn't you have to? Well, how about discipleship group leaders, 7, 6.30, you have to come. And if you don't, you're not faithful. You don't love the Lord. Have you ever used that type of logic on somebody? I don't ever want to say we have to do something unless scripturally it's there. Now, do we, do we have to pray? The answer is yes and no. Yes, we have to pray as an outflow of our heart, of our love for the Lord. That's obeying his command. But we don't pray simply because it's a duty that somehow we think magically gets rid of sin. Again, there are times where I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like evangelizing. I don't feel like being merciful to somebody or loving an enemy. But I know what is true. I know that the truth is that when I obey the Lord out of an outflow of an ultimate heart of wanting to know Christ, then even if I don't feel like praying, I will come and pray. As a result, not of if I do this, then it's quid pro quo, it automatically leads to this, but rather because I love the Lord and what he has done for me, that, that changes a desire to want to do things even when I don't feel like doing things. I know that might seem confusing. But if you can get this, it will dramatically change the way you think about your faith and about what it means to live for Christ. Another example, so many of us think, I've had many people think, if we have a youth program, program, youth group, that is so awesome, and the volunteers are great, and there's an awesome youth pastor, and we have lights in here, smoke machines, you know, the big like strobe lights flashing off, and we're talking about Jesus, and everyone's pumping up, and the kids are going, you know, they're, they're going up and down, Jesus, and have big words. We think that's going to change them. But there's been a recent study, and it, there have been so many studies on this topic. By far, the number one factor of a child and a youth who's been raised in the church, turning to Christ, is the fact that God sovereignly moves to work in the lives of parents. And as parents are genuinely changed in their hearts, not, oh, my kid needs to go to a really cool youth group because if they don't, then they're not going to follow the Lord. It's, they're watching me ultimately. My children watch me most of the time. And they're spending very small amounts of time. And even if they were to spend pretty regular amounts of time, the impact of that is going to be far less than what parents are. So if you, as mom and dad, it's not that you're just going to church. It's that you are loving Christ. You are surrendering your heart to him. The way you think about your money, how you, the way you think about missions, the way you think about 
um, God's word, your love for it. If you don't see that in your own life, you shouldn't expect that to transfer over to your children just by simply going access or gospel train. It just doesn't work that way. If we do think that that's, way, that's the way, then we've succumbed to the law. We're in this cul-de-sac that John Stott is talking about. You've already thought now the law is what changes them. And what happens when they're not in that context? They fade away. And automatically the assumption is, well, they weren't in a good enough youth group, good enough, they didn't have a certain environment, rather than saying, oh Lord, have mercy on me, oh God, a sinner, because I haven't lived in a way in which that person, that parent who is most broken and most uh, just laid out prostrate before the Lord and is pleading on behalf of Christ and his glory, I tell you that parent will make a tremendous difference in the life of that child as they grow older. It's not going to be because they go to an awesome youth group. I know some of you have a hard time. Maybe you just totally disagree with me on this, but I, I want you to show me in scripture where this is true. Because you look at Galatians and you see it. You can pray really hard. Some of you think, if I just pray really hard, oh God, please help me to defeat sin X. Help me not to be angry anymore. Help me not to be lazy anymore. Help me not to lust anymore. Help me not to be covetous anymore. Please, and I've shared this with people before, is the more you pray, if, if you say, oh God, please help me not to be angry anymore, God will say, I'm going to answer your prayer, Sam. I'm going to bring more people in your life that's going to be leading you to your anger and I want you to trust my word that you are broken. You are sinful. You need me more than that person needs me. You need to, be, you need to die to your self-righteousness. If you say, oh Lord, please help me not to lust anymore, the answer is not going to be getting rid of every single lustful image in the rest of your life. Anyone ever experienced that where you no longer see anything in, your whole, in the whole world? The only way you can do that today is to literally just go and live in the woods somewhere. <laughs> and even there, sometimes uh, George Verwer talks about, it. he was just walking around and suddenly he saw an image. You know, this is in the day before the internet, you know, where he's in the woods praying and an image, like a, a, a piece of magazine cover just was right there. The point of the matter is, is that we think that in order to defeat sin, we pray hard. And again, there is a place for praying hard, but do not think that praying hard is going to defeat sin forever. The only hope we have is Christ. Jesus died, and this is the whole point of Galatians. Galatians is all about the fact that let us not rest on our self-effort, on the law, to somehow drive us to freedom. Jesus died on a cross he became a curse for us so that you can be free. And until you know you are at the end of yourself, the law shows how dark your sin is, how depraved. The law also shows us that you are enslaved by your own heart and by Satan. The law also shows us that we can't do anything ever to gain God's favor. God would have to do something dramatic, and he did. He intervened. He was gracious. He sent his son. 
And how can we then say, no, that's not good enough, God. I'm sorry, but my efforts, yeah, praying the way that I do. I just need to pray a little bit stronger, louder. I need to pound the ground a little bit more. I need to fast. That's not the answer. The answer is verses four to seven. But when the time was right, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The the word but is a beautiful word in the Bible. It always shows adversative, contrast, meaning this is how it was, this is how it is now. Before a slave, now a son, now a daughter. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And now that you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts so we're no longer asleep but a son. And we're crying, Abba, Father. We get to do that. And we're an heir. So that sweet word, the, the adversative, the but, the contrast, is so beautiful. Right at the right time, God is sovereign. And he knows exactly what he's doing. And then he makes this promise, you're not a slave anymore. You're not enslaved to sin. You can be free. You are no longer orphans. Jesus said this to his disciples in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What a wonderful promise. How can we know that Jesus has kept that promise because we know in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, God sent forth his son. And you know what? One thing we know in scripture is that you can't be a slave and a son simultaneously. The father won't allow it because the prodigal son goes home and thinks, I'm not worthy to be a son. I'm going to be a slave. And then the father says, no, you're not a slave. You're a son. And here are the marks of a son. First, there's a legal mark to a son. What defines the son in, in this passage is legal. Slaves can obey just like a son or daughter can. So what's the difference? The difference is there's a legal record of sonship. That's why he's, he gets to be an heir. So an heir assumes this legal transfer that is recognized by the state. And Paul uses the same logic. If you are a son, you are a legal heir. So how do we become legal sons and daughters and legal heirs? The answer is, Paul says, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law. Every one of us has been under the law, and the law has done the job perfectly well. The law has shown every one of us that we are sinners, that we fall short of God's glory, that we cannot make it on our own. We are depraved. There's nothing in us that will pursue God apart from Christ. So the law has worked perfectly. And the law has condemned us as sinners. And it's revealed to us that we can't stand before a holy God. And so we will love sin. The law shows us we love sin. Law shows us that we don't want to give up on sin. And if you want to prove this, just try stopping sinning. Stop gossiping. As soon as you try stopping gossiping, someone's going to come up to you and gossip. And your instinct 
And you're des- it's not just an instinct. It's a desire is to want to follow up. Try ever saying, you know what? I, I'd rather not hear that, actually. Just try that. Do you ever say that? How often do you say it? Pretty rarely, probably. You know why? Because we love to gossip. We love it. We enjoy it. And we hate admitting that, but it's true. Why is lust so powerful? Lust is, it literally pins itself. It's, it's like a, a spider web. It, when you go walk through a spider web and it just, you walk through a big web, it just gets all covered all over you and try to peel it off. It's virtually impossible. Lust, it, it hooks on. And once you say, I'm not going to look lustfully, well, the mind wanders. We start looking at different people in different ways. When we're so full of ourselves in anger, we say, I'm not going to be angry again. But you know what? When someone comes along and does something that you really do not like, why do we continue to be angry? And I'm not saying just blurting out, screaming, cursing, but even in your heart. Because we still want to be angry. We, we want the right to be angry. We want to be free to sin. That's what it boils down to, is we want the freedom to sin. And so it required this legal transfer of God because what happened at first is a legal distancing from God, a judgment. And it took a legal work, justification, for us to no longer be called slaves, but sons. Secondly is, the second mark of a son is repentance, having a repentant heart. I love the way Jack Miller tells the story of the time that you know, he uh, resigned from his teaching position at Westminster, as well as he was the founding pastor, a church plant, of this church was, that was growing, and he resigned from that at the same time, so he resigned from the seminary as a t- professor, resigned from the church, and resigned from a leadership role in his denomination, all because, you know why? Because he said everyone in those three organizations, the leaders were proud, arrogant, unteachable, and misused their tongues. So he resigned from all of them because he couldn't deal with these proud, arrogant people. But after spending much time studying God's word, coming before him, humbling himself, studying Galatians, he came to realize, actually, he was the one who is proud, unteachable, misused his tongue. You know, that's what God's word does, and that's what the cross does. When you really come before it humbling yourself, you begin to see that the very things that you find wrong with everybody else is actually wrong with you. And only then when you come to the end of yourself. So what he had to do is he went back to every one of them, apologized, and took back his resignations. And he talked about that being a very difficult process. It was so humbling to actually go to people who you have hurt and say, I have failed. But only when you see yourself not deserving to be a son, but actually deserving to be a slave, is when you finally see the privilege and joy of being a son. Do you see that? That's the prodigal son. That was that story. Until he realized, I don't deserve to be a son because of all that I've done. I deserve to be a slave. Then he was actually, his heart was finally open to see what joy there was to be a son. Jesus 
tells us the exact same thing in the parable of the tax collector in Luke 18 where the, the tax collector, not the Pharisee who's praying, oh God, I do this and I do that, I do this and that. I'm, thank God I'm not like him over there. And the tax collector is on the ground beating his breast saying, um, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So who, Jesus says, who went home justified? The Pharisee or the tax collector? Their prayers are radically different. It's obviously the tax collector. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That person has the mark of a son. Another mark of a son is that they're loved. And it doesn't make sense um, when a person cries out, Abba, Father, unless they really believe they're loved. Because that phrase is a very odd phrase to call God. God is, for a Jew, the very name Yahweh was never pronounced. And you, it's, you have to understand, the way they did it, and you, most of your Bibles have this in the Old Testament, if you have a capital Lord, L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, different places, it's because of the consonants, Y-H-W-H. And the reason they, it's called the Tetragrammaton. And the reason why they do that, scholars, Hebrew scholars did that, is that they believe God's name should never be pronounced. It was so holy. So they would remove all the consonants so that you couldn't pronounce the name. It was meant to be an unpronounceable word to refer to God. And so the translators in English use capital L-O-R-D. That's how highly the Jews believe that God's name is. So the Jewish Christians who are in the the Galatian church, they had the Hebrew scriptures with the idea that you never pronounce God's name. And when Paul is saying, You know, you can cry out to him, Abba. And Abba, any baby that is born in the world, you know why the one name, one word that is commonplace in almost every language is words for mom and dad, Abba. Because babies make that sound, ba, 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 ba. They just, ma, 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 ba, ba, ba. That's their natural flow. And so whoever came up, with like, like, if you were to go back to linguistics, somewhere along the way, the first two people that a baby should refer to is mom and dad, mama, papa, you know. So, Abba is that intimate. You're, you're my Abba. You know, you're my dad. You're my daddy. You're not, I'm not saying you should pray daddy God. That's a really weird thing. I, some people pray that way. I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. I'm not saying you should pray daddy God. But I do think, though, that the idea of it, where Paul is saying, Abba, Father, is so radical. How do you get to pray that way? You know you're a son, you're a daughter. You've been saved. You're in the family. This is your dad, someone who loves you, gave himself for you. And so what Paul is saying is you get to pray with intimacy and he will hear you like your Abba. You are loved and you're appreciated. You're protected. You're cared for. That's the mark of a son. They know that. They know it in every circumstance. They always know my dad is going to protect me. Even if things are in its most horrific state, any child knows that. 
Lastly is that the mark of a son is that they have a spirit-filled heart. It's not just a legal declaration of sonship. Paul says that the spirit is in our hearts so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. So it's not just a legal declaration, it's experiential. Like you should experience sonship. It's not merely intellectual. It's supposed to, when, when the spirit of his son comes, the mark of a son is that you have the Holy Spirit in your heart who now affects you, who changes your emotions, your feelings, your affections, the deepest parts of your soul. And so not only, we never, we're not simply, we are amazed, wondrous, fearful of a holy God, but we're also loved, we cherish, we have intimacy with, we delight in, we enjoy. There's a, there's a, uh, let me just give one more quote from John Stott. God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son that we might have the status of sonship, and he sent his spirit that we might have an experience of it. This comes through the affectionate, confidential intimacy of our access to God in prayer, in which we find ourselves assuming the attitude and using the language not of slaves, but of sons. Again, there is a place to speak when we pray of the holy, wondrous, infinite, un, you know, just un, uh, indescribable God. But if it's just that all the time and it's not, oh God, you are merciful, kind, compassionate, loving, both of those are always concurrent. And a son and a daughter prays this way. They know this to be true. Let me just close with this story and then we'll... Um, George told me this story. Speaking of Goma, where he is right now, if you could please pray for him, uh, by the way. He and Eric were in Goma. They were entering a village. And as they got out of the car, there are all these children there, so excited, screaming with delight and joy. And if you know George, you know that one of the things he really believes in is behind the poor is the poorest of the poor. Behind the rejected is the most rejected. Behind the weak is the most weak. And George is all about go to the most weak, the poorest of the poor. So when he walked out, every one of these kids are poor. But at the very back of these crowds of kids was this one little boy who could not get to the front because he had mangled feet. Um, He had sticks as crutches. And he was just way in the back. You could tell he was rejected. This is being rejected amongst the most impoverished kids in all the world. So it gives you a little bit of perspective. And so he said what he did was he walked, he sort of parted the waves, walked through the crowd, went to that little boy, bent down, and he remembered his name because he had visited him and he called out his name. And that little boy just sprung forth with the greatest face of delight and joy because he was amazed that George remembered his name. Those of us who are most broken by sin, who are most aware of our need for Christ, feel the most undeserving, are the ones when we see our Savior say, I know your name. I gave my life for you. It's when we're at that state that we find the cross so sweet. 
Worship is not a chore. It's a delight. It's a privilege. We never think, oh, I, I have to do this. It's such a burden for me. Oh, I have to give. I have to, I have to serve. If service is a burden, if giving is a burden, if loving is a burden, if, then may I say, it might possibly be that you have not come to the end of yourself. You still think that following Christ means doing something for him. Only when you become a little boy with mangled feet, with sticks as crutches, where you cannot get to the front. And I tell you, this is not just for the drug addict and the prostitute and the tax collector. It is for every one of us who is well off, who has everything well put together. The gospel, the law shows us we need the law. Thank God for the law, because it shows someone like me who's actually okay, that I'm really not okay. And it also shows me I need a savior. He knows your name. You're not a slave. You're a son. You're a daughter. You are loved. And you can cry out, Abba, Father, because you're his precious child. May you never forget that. Let's pray together. Let's take a moment of time so that we can worship the Lord. And come into his presence. And reflect on that reality. I, I wonder how many of us still have not gotten it yet. Meaning, we still think it's something we do. No, I, it can't be. It can't be grace upon grace. It has to be something I do. Or, you know what? I'm not that bad. I'm actually pretty good. Relative, if you know of other people who are far worse off than you, and you actually think that's true, then maybe you still haven't understood and you haven't seen the wonders of the gospel. So I really want to encourage you to allow the law to convict you of the darkness of your heart and then of your need for Christ. And when you do that, he will come and you can come to him when you've come to the end of yourself, you can find your hope and rest and joy in Him. You know, it really has to be nothing except the blood of Jesus, His righteousness. That's what we depend on. That's what we hope on. So can we stand together and we're going to sing this song? And that is exactly what we're going to sing about, about that reality, that it is Christ and Christ alone.